Today's passage is found in Ephesians 1, verse 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who, are, who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Um, please be seated, and kids K-5 through 5th grade are dismissed to Kidlands. Thanks for reading, Brad. So as Brad just read, uh, we're going to be looking at the book of Ephesians this summer. So if you haven't already, I invite you to go ahead and turn your Bibles there. Uh, the, the book of Ephesians um, is, is a powerful, uh, short book in the Bible. Um, it is one of the clearest summaries of Christian faith um, in the New Testament. And in these six chapters... Um, Paul really is laboring uh, so that you and, and I might see uh, one dominant theme, what it means to be in Christ. And so the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul really is explaining what God has done in the gospel in Christ. And then the last three chapters, Paul's dealing with what that means for you and what that means for me what God has done in Christ. Now, some of you will remember that in the fall of 2015, we looked at the book of Ephesians. Now, Midlands at the time was not Midlands, it was Crossroads, but we knew that in January of 2016 that we would become Midlands. And so an effort to kind of prepare us as a body for that transition the elders at the time looked at the book of Ephesians. 
part of that was strategic because of what Paul says within the book. And as we walked through the Ephesians in 2015, we, we kept coming back to saying, this is what the scriptures say a church is and does, and this is who we want to be. We want to be a people shaped by God's word. And so the, uh, the goal for us is, is very similar to that. Five years into our existence as a church, we want to pause and we want to reflect and we want to take some time to go back to the scriptures and ask ourselves, what kind of church are we? And is my hope and is my prayer that as we do that, we will consistently come back to God's word and say, this is who we want to be. This is who we are. We want to reach people with the gospel, build them as the church, and send them into the world for the glory of God. So that's, that's why we're going back to the book of Ephesians. And I pray that it will be a blessing to you personally, but it will be a blessing to us corporately as well. So before we get into our text, let me pray and ask for God's help. Father, we come before you this morning, Lord, full of a sense of unworthiness, Lord, when we think about your glory and when we think about who you are, Lord, immediately we're reminded that we are not worthy. But Lord, in your love, you have come to us, you have rescued us, and Father, you have brought us together this morning to hear from your word. So, Father, we ask that you would be gracious to us, that you, by your Spirit, would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart that's ready to respond in obedience. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we all love a good plan. We enjoy watching movies that have got a good plan. We enjoy reading books where there's a good plan. You can follow it. And one writer said that in order for a plan to be good, you need three things. First, a plan needs to have a goal. And second, a plan needs to have a means for accomplishing that goal. And finally, a good plan needs to have certainty. You need to know that this is where we're going, this is how we're getting there, and we will get there. In our passage today that Brad read for us, Paul explains to us God's plan for redemption, God's plan for salvation. And Paul's purpose in these first 14 verses is to strengthen our faith by explaining the purpose and blessing of salvation, of redemption. And Paul will say that our redemption was planned by the Father, secured by the Son, and sealed by the Spirit. Planned by the Father, secured by the Son, sealed by the Spirit. And further, Paul wants us as Christians to rest and, and be confident in our salvation because of what God's done. And all of these things are working 
for the same goal, and that's to the praise of God's glory. So Paul wants us to see this plan. He wants us to understand this plan, but Paul also wants us to actually praise God because of this plan. Paul will say in uh, the next passage that we'll look at next week, he actually wants the eyes of your hearts to be enlightened. And so he, he accomplishes that goal in part by giving us God's plan for redemption. And so we uh, jump in now to our passage. In the first two verses, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is the author of this letter, and he's writing to the saints in Ephesus. And you may remember he ministered in Ephesus for three years to our knowledge, it was the longest that Paul spent in one place ministering to. He, he deeply loved the saints in Ephesus. Uh, Paul's writing this from prison after about seven years after he left Ephesus. So in that gap of time, Ephesus, a, a growing city in the ancient world, had a growing church. And with a growing young church, there are inevitably issues that sprung up. And so Paul is writing to remind the Ephesian believers of their identity in Christ, the power of the gospel, and God's plan for the church in fulfilling his purpose. And so because of those things, Paul will spend the last half of the letter exhorting believers to live in light of what God has done. So he'll say things like, walk in love, bear with one another, be kind to one another, forgive one another, and ultimately to to stand firm against the spiritual evil forces of this world. And so Paul will develop these themes as we'll see throughout the letter, and, and we could even see hints of them in our passage today. But Paul begins his letter with a a flurry of praise. In the Greek, these verses from 3 to 14, they're they're one sentence. In in one sense, it's one thought from Paul. It's It's a shotgun of praise, and that's intentional. Paul's setting a right foundation for everything else that he will say in the letter. If we don't understand who God is and what he's done then everything else that Paul will say won't make sense to us. And the same is true for our faith. If we don't start with God and understanding who He is and what He's done, everything else will just be off. And so Paul begins in verse 3 by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so this is, this is the heart of our passage today. This is the, the general point that Paul is making in these first 14 verses, is that we, if we are in Christ, have every spiritual blessing in the heavens. Why? Well, because we're in Christ. To be in Christ is to have every spiritual blessing. You don't get one without the other. So that, that's Paul's general Opening praise is praise be to God 
who has given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. Paul wants us to see this clearly, that for those of you who are trusting and hoping in Christ, you are really in Christ, and that has profound implications for your entire life. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. So this is the general call to praise. However, Paul explains the general call to praise with more specific uh, reasons for praise. And he does that by highlighting the Trinitarian nature of our salvation. So I wonder, have you ever tried to explain the Trinity to someone? Maybe your kids have asked you, Mommy, Dad, how is God one in three persons? Or maybe you've been talking to an unbeliever and explaining your faith and the Trinity comes up. And maybe you have just thought to yourself, how is God one in three persons? And we won't this morning presume to unpack all of that because the Trinity is a mystery. But as Paul kind of pulls the curtain back in redemption, we catch a, a pretty clear glimpse at these three persons in the Godhead working in their activity in redemption. And so I think as we do that, it, I think it's really helpful for our faith to see the different persons in their different work. And I think it will ultimately help our prayer lives as we begin to see each person of the Trinity in their role. We can then begin to pray in, in response according to what God has done. And so the first point that Paul makes is, is the plan of the Father. And so he spends time in verses 4 through 6 detailing the Father's role in redemption. And the, the point is that redemption is planned by the Father. Paul says that the Father chose us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. And so Paul takes us back into eternity where he explains God's role in redemption. The plan of redemption was not an afterthought in God's mind. Paul says, before the foundation of the world. And that means before you were created, before I was created, before the world was created. God chose a people to redeem, to claim as His own. Paul says that we are chosen by God to be holy and blameless. Further, he says that it is in love that he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And Paul minces no words here. If you're a Christian, if you're hoping and believing in Christ, it is because God the Father chose you. Predestination and election, sometimes we get a little tense at these words. But they're not words invented by man. John Calvin didn't invent these words. The doctrine of election is a biblical doctrine. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. 
And while it has been debated in church history, this doctrine, we see the language here in our passage this morning, and so we have to do something with that. And it is, uh, I, I suspect, one of the reasons that this doctrine is, is rejected or makes us a little uncomfortable, I think, is, is because of misunderstanding. We don't often have a clear grasp of what it is versus what it isn't. And I remember the first time that I had a friend explain this, this doctrine, what we're talking about here. And I immediately thought that God was somehow up in heaven just, just plucking out his favorites. He was building his all-star dream team for heaven. And growing up at, at recess, the highlight of the day for every elementary school kid was recess. We got to play pickup. And you followed the seasons. In the fall, it was pick up football. And in the winter, it was basketball. And then in the spring, it was kickball because we couldn't have the stuff for baseball. And so in each of those different seasons, there were different captains. And, and the job of the captain was to, to size everybody up and to go through and say, okay, now you're tall, so I, I think I want you for football. That, that was what my mind thought when I thought of election when my friend first explained it to me. No, friends, that is not the election that the Bible speaks of. Our, our election is based on merit. It's based on conditions, preferences. God's election is unconditional. Paul takes us back into eternity before we were ever created he says, before the foundations of the world, God's election is different. It's unconditional. It's based on God's love. And there's nothing in these 14 verses that would give us any indication that God, before the foundation of the world, somehow foresaw a future decision that you and I would make and therefore conditioned his election based on our response. It's not there. Rather, it's unconditional. It's based on God's love. And this is the pattern, not just in the New Testament, but it's the pattern in the Old Testament. God tells the Israelites in Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 7, He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. Out of all the peoples of, who are on the face of the earth. Listen. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. God chose Israel to be a holy nation because of his love, not because they were some strong, mighty, or awesome nation. It was a free gift from God. And if you're in Christ today, it's because God chose you. He gave you a free gift and he, he gave you his grace to hope and believe. 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. And so while one of the, the main pushbacks against this doctrine is, I think, misunderstanding I hope you can begin to see that this doctrine is, 
it's based on God's love, his, his purpose. It's not based on us. And verse 6 tells us that the, the ultimate purpose in this is to the praise of his glorious grace. I like how one commentator put it. He said, Paul considers God's free choice of his people to be the clearest indicator of the lavish nature of his grace. God's sovereignty in salvation is his free gift of grace to us. What a tremendous comfort this is to those of us who know our own sin. Think for a minute about who Paul is writing to. He's writing to both Jew and Gentile in Ephesus. Now, in Ephesus, there was the temple of the goddess Artemis. This temple was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. It took over a hundred years to complete. And twice a week, there would be a parade throughout the city. It would start in the city and make its way out to the temple of Artemis. Ephesus was a city entrenched in paganism. They were gripped by the influence of magic. And so no doubt, many of these Gentiles who Paul is addressing in this letter were active in that lifestyle before God saved them. And for years, they devoted themselves to the worship of pagan gods and goddesses who were fickle and capricious. You could never know if the gods were actually happy with you. And in fact, if you were suffering, it may just be because the gods were angry with you. So you needed to do something. You needed to pay some money. You needed to go march in the parade. You needed to get a priest or a priestess to intercede for you. If you were a pagan in Ephesus, the hamster wheel of keeping the gods appeased was endless. Think of how comforting these words would have been from Paul. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. In love, he predestined us for adoption. God's love for you will never change. This is the great comfort that this doctrine brings. As God's love for us is not based on us, it's based on God. And so that means in our worst moments, God still loves us. He's chosen us to be holy and blameless before Him. The other objection that people raise against this is, is one ultimately of, of pride. People often push back against this or even reject it outright ultimately because they want to be able to contribute something to their own salvation. And yet John Calvin says that election is the ultimate proof that we cannot claim any righteousness for ourselves. And thus it's the ultimate remover of human pride. Our condition is such that there is no amount of work that we could ever do to be holy and blameless before God. We are dependent on God to declare us holy and blameless. And so if you find yourself this morning pushing back against that, I invite you to search your heart. Are you thinking more highly of yourself than you ought, than the scripture allows us to? 
Lord willing, in, in a few weeks, we'll, we'll see more in chapter 2 of our desperate condition in sin. And so we'll, we'll save more of this point for the, uh, that week. Um, the second thing that Paul wants us to see is the son's role in redemption. And the son secures redemption. So starting in verse 7 through, through 10, Paul is helping us see what, what Jesus' responsibility in redemption is. And it's to secure. The father plans, Jesus secures. Specifically, Jesus secures by his sacrifice on the cross. It says we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespass. The word redemption means to be delivered from slavery. In, in the New Testament, the idea is, is more to be ransomed from slavery. So the word itself is helping us see that if we are redeemed, then that means that we are enslaved before we're redeemed. And Jesus says in John 8.34 that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So that's our slavery. It's, it's an enslavement to sin. So Jesus redeems us. He pulls us out of that slavery. How? By his blood. That's the ransom payment, is his blood. And Paul tells us in verse 8 that God lavished his grace upon us in all wisdom, in all insight. And if you're like me, from time to time, we have a misguided view of God's grace. Sometimes we think that, yeah, God's grace saved us, but, but God only gave us just this much grace. And if we just sin again after being a Christian for a long time, then that's it. God's just going to pull his grace back. He's got no more in the storehouse for us. But Paul says he lavished his grace upon us. Think for a minute about the feeding of the 5,000. At the end, how much food was left over? Twelve baskets of food. They couldn't eat all the food. And part of the point for us is to see that God's mercies are abundant. They are plentiful. God's grace will not run out for his people. He lavishes his grace on his people. And so if you find yourself this morning doubting God's love for you, and hear these words, in Christ, God lavished his grace upon you. On the cross, Jesus paid for your ransom. There is nothing left to be paid. It's finished, Jesus said. He secured the Father's plan to rescue a people for himself. So in verses 9 through 10, we read about God's revelation in Christ. And so it's important for us at the very heart of God's plan of redemption is Jesus Christ. And Paul, later in chapter 3, will pick up again on this mystery language. But for us, it's just important right now that we see that the center of God's revelation is Jesus. 
So this is why we say we want to be a gospel-centered church. We want to be a Christ-centered church because God and his plan is Christ-centered. We want to follow God. And the language of the, the fullness of time unite all things in Christ. If you were here last week, maybe that, that jogs your memory some. That's what we were looking at last week in Isaiah chapter 60, where we got a picture of what God will ultimately do one day, where he ultimately will unite all things in Christ. It will, the, the city, Jerusalem, in Isaiah 60, the city there is given a new name. It's called the city of the Lord. It's given a new identity. It's no longer just for one nation, but we saw that the nations come to this city. And so we looked at last week, we, we know we're not there yet, but we know we will be. And so despite what we can see, we know that God will, in the fullness of time, unite all things in Christ. On that day, we will finally dwell with God without sin. He will be our God and we will be his people. And so, given that Christ is the center of God's plan, we want to be a Christ-centered church. This is practically one of the reasons why we take communion every week. Because every week we want the sermon to end on the cross where Jesus paid for our redemption. Christ secured the Father's plan. The third thing that Paul wants us to see is the seal of the Spirit. In verses 11 through 14. And again, Paul draws us back to the doctrine of election that we looked at earlier. It is important to say that, that Paul doesn't set God's sovereignty and human responsibility against one another as if they're rival opponents. He says clearly, God is sovereign. And he says clearly, when you heard the word of truth and believed, you were sealed. God's sovereign. We were responsible. So we will always call on people to place their trust in Christ, to turn from their sins and to believe on Jesus. In the Bible, there's no contradiction between these two. And so we must be humble in our approach and submit to the Scriptures and to teach what it teaches. He says again in verse 12, he gives us the purpose of the redemption here. And the purpose is to the praise of his glory. Paul says, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Our redemption is to the praise of God's glory. When Paul says, we who were the first to hope, he, he's probably referencing Jews. He says in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to the Jew first, then the Gentile. Immediately, however, Paul brings the Gentiles in and says, in him you also. So Paul's given us a little glimpse, a theme he's going to develop later in the gospel. Jew and Gentile are united in the gospel. That is part of what the gospel does, is it unites people who otherwise would not be in the same room. 
both Jew and Gentile are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Both receive the promises of God. So one of the the chief responsibilities of the Holy Spirit's role in redemption is just that, to seal believers. So the God the Father plans, Jesus secures, the Holy Spirit seals. The Holy Spirit makes redemption effectual for us. Now, a seal is something we may not be familiar with. We don't use them as much anymore. But a seal was commonly used in the ancient world to denote authority and ownership of something. So if you put your seal on a possession, it publicly communicated to others, hey, that's mine. Now, my mother-in-law, she has her own seal. And it took me a little bit of time to realize this. If you go to her house, you'll see her seal. It's pretty public. My mother-in-law's seal is bright neon orange duct tape. And she will put that bright neon orange duct tape on anything that is hers that could easily be confused for someone else's, such as pens, tools, DVDs, you name it. If it can be confused with someone else's, it's got orange tape on it. And it won't take you too long to realize in that household, you may can ask for permission to use it, but don't you dare take it if it's got orange tape on it. It doesn't belong to you. And in the new covenant, God seals us by his spirit. When the Holy Spirit indwells you, it's God saying, hey, you are mine. I have purchased you and I have set my seal on you. Notice the timing. When do we get sealed? When you heard the word of truth and believed. There's not a delay here. We're not waiting for the Spirit. There's no such thing as a spiritless Christian. Doesn't exist. If you are hoping and believing in Christ, it's because you have the Spirit of God who's sealing you right now. The Holy Spirit indwells us. It writes God's law on our heart. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. The ESV says that the uh, Holy Spirit is our guarantee. Some translations will say the the down payment. I think down payment is, is a little bit more helpful in that you don't put a down payment on something that you're not fully intending to come back and claim for yourself. The Holy Spirit is our seal and He's our guarantee. He is God's proof that one day we will be with Christ. And so brothers and sisters, we are saved so that God's glory might be displayed in your life, in my life, in our life together as a church. If God did not redeem us, we would be lost. We would be in darkness Our sin would still condemn us. But praise be to God who has blessed us in Christ 
with every spiritual blessing. This is the foundation of our worship. It's what our triune God has done in Christ in the gospel. And so our identity as a church must be marked by this gospel. Together, we have been chosen by the Father, redeemed by Christ, sealed by the Spirit. The flurry of praise here is intended to unite us around God's glorious grace. Let me end by offering three quick points of application. What does this mean for us? Number one, be confident. Be confident of your salvation because your salvation is not dependent on you. That's why you can be confident. God devised a plan to save you. He sent his son to save you and he's given you his spirit so that in the future he will save you. But you should not only be confident in your salvation, you should also be confident in where we're going, where history's going. I love how one pastor during the Reformation put it. He said, The Lord cared about you before the world was made, before you ever existed. So how much more will He care about you now that the world has been created and you have appeared in it? Be confident in your salvation, but be confident that the Lord is fulfilling His plan. Second, be humble. Again, God's love for you is not based on you. It's based on God. And that truth ought to promote the most profound sense of humility that we can have. God loves us not because we're great or lovable. God loves us because of God's love. And so if this doctrine does not drive us to our knees in praise and thanksgiving, we're misunderstanding what Paul's doing. Finally, be content. Be content. Be content because God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. He hasn't withheld something from us as his children. The psalmist says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And once we understand God's plan of redemption, we understand that we have received every spiritual blessing. In Christ, we have all that we need. We have all that our soul longs for. Therefore, we're content. We don't run to someone else or something else and look for satisfaction. We have all that we need in Christ. We've been given that. And so before the foundation of the world, God chose us in Christ in love. He sent His Son in the world to secure our redemption. And He's given us His Holy Spirit as a promise that one day we will be with Him. And all of this is so that our God might display His glorious grace. What a tremendous blessing. So now we will transition to that time in our service where we remember. We remember not just by hearing the gospel, but as we feel the bread and as we smell the juice and as we taste it, we're reminded 
of what our redemption cost. We're reminded that the Son gave his body and his blood so that you and I could be called children of God. So Paul gives a warning because of the the seriousness of what this is. That we're to examine ourselves. So after I pray and, and before you go, do that. Examine yourself. Ask God if there's something in your heart that you need to confess. Or take a moment and, and thank God for His grace in your life. And if you are here and you find yourself not a Christian, then I would ask you to just participate in a different way. I would ask you not to go and get the elements, but to just sit and think on the things that we've talked about. And I would implore you to turn to Jesus, confess your sins, and to receive the forgiveness of your trespass. If you'd like to know more about that, talk to me, talk to someone that you came with. Be happy to explain how you receive this glorious grace. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you. Father, we thank you for your plan of redemption. Father, we thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Father, we declare that you are God and there is no other. Lord, would you help us, Lord, to be confident in our salvation. Lord, trusting that it's not dependent on us. Father, would you give us humility? May we be a people marked by humility. And Lord, would you help us to be content? Lord, realizing that we have all that we need in Christ. Lord, we thank you for lavishing your grace upon us. We pray that you would continue to do so. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.